All right, happy 4th of July weekend to everybody here. Hopefully we're all kind of, I mean, we've had a couple days to recover from it, so hopefully we're all feeling sharp and ready to go for a pretty significant chunk of Exodus today. We are looking at five chapters. We're looking at chapters 35, 36, 37, 38, and 39, all about the people building the tabernacle, God's tent. Now, I, I mean, as you, can, as you can guess from that, there is a lot of content in this passage. Like, if, if, if I was going to do the thing where sometimes, you know, we read the passage we're going to preach on before we preach on it, just the reading of this would take over 30 minutes this morning to do that. So we're not going to do that. And there's more good news, which is actually most of the content in, in these chapters right here, we've actually already covered it. Um, a, a few weeks ago, we went through this first tabernacle section in Exodus, which was back uh, chapters 25 through 31. And interestingly, almost everything in our passage today is a word-for-word repetition of what was already written in those previous chapters. So actually, uh, chapters 25 through 31 covered uh, the offer of the tabernacle. This is where God first, you know, told the plans to Moses, said, this is the tent I, I want you to build. And then today, our passage covers the building of the tabernacle, how those how the people of Israel actually put those plans into action. And then next week, we're going to have a third and final tabernacle sermon on chapter 40, the completion of the tabernacle. This is when God's spirit actually comes home to dwell with his people in this tent. So three kind of different tabernacle sections in Exodus, three different tabernacle sermons, each with a different uh, specific focus. Last week, the, the focus was on the symbolism of the tabernacle. So this would be um, you know, what, what, what it represents. We like looked at the furniture, right? We looked at the, the layout, the, the materials used, all that, and we asked, okay, what does this tell us about who God is and what it means to, for him to dwell with us as his people? What does it mean? Next week, the third sermon, the focus is going to be on the significance of the tabernacle. So this is, would be like where it fits in, in the book of Exodus, why there's this many chapters, you know, this huge percentage of the book of Exodus devoted to this to this tent right here, what it foreshadows for the rest of Scripture, for eternity. I can't wait for that. I've been, I've been excited for that sermon for a long time, so that's next week. But today, our focus, again, is just going to be very practical and, and very local, in a sense. We're looking at the function of the tabernacle, what it means for the function of our church, Fellowship Bible Church, and every local church today. Not just what the tabernacle is, but what the tabernacle is for it's, its purpose, what it does. And specifically, we're going to narrow it down even further and, and look at the doers of the doings in the tabernacle, and that would be the priests, the priesthood. It's really the, the biggest aspect of the tabernacle that we just breezed over last time. If you were following along in your Bibles, I just said, well, let's skip that chunk. We're going to come back to it. That was the part that was all about the priests, uh, all the instructions about you know, who they are, what, what they're supposed to do in this tent. And that, that functional aspect of the tabernacle, that's going to be our biggest focus today. In fact, what I'm going to do right now, hopefully you got your pens ready, because <laughs> there's only four fill-in-the-blanks in this, in this whole sermon. So here's going to be two of them right now, your two takeaways right from the get-go. Number one is you have a priest. Number two is you are a priest. That's it. If you're a Christian, this is true of you. You have a priest. You are a priest. Those are two key truths that are just really um, hammered home in the New Testament about the identity of all those who follow Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.14 says, Since then we, 
that would be the, the, the local Christian community, have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And then we have 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, you the, you the church, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, that's a tabernacle image right there, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So this is wild. We are the tent. We are the tabernacle. We're also the priests in the tent, and we have a great high priest. Hopefully you're keeping all those categories straight in your mind. They're important. This is who you are if you are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. You're a person who has a priest. You're a person who is a priest. The problem is, you know, most Christians today don't really have a great understanding of what priesthood is or, or what um, priesthood means for the life of the church. Is this kind of going in and out? Is anyone else hearing that or is that just me? I think it must be one of the monitors up here. I'll just keep going. So the problem is we are priests, but we read this stuff like, okay, you're a priest in the Bible. And we think, okay, great. Maybe some of us have an image of uh, you know, what we saw as a priest in a certain Christian tradition when we were growing up, or we think of, you know, weird priests if you're from a, a different background out of the country or something. A lot of different religions have priests. So what does it mean when we say that we as Christians, we are priests and we have a priest? Well, to get that background, you need to look here. The book of Exodus. You need to look at the tabernacle. That's where all of this comes in for us today. What we're going to do as we work through this tabernacle section, we're going to zero in on the priesthood. We're going to look at, you know, what it's for, its function, then we're going to turn the focus on ourselves. What does this tell us about our role, our function, right here? Fellowship Bible Church, or if you're visiting in your local church, wherever it is when you go back home, what, is, what does this tell us about who we are to be? Because believe it or not, that, that, that summary that I gave right at the beginning where I said, you know, this, these chapters say, this is when the people build the tabernacle. That's actually a flawed summary, of these chapters right here. Because what we're going to see as we work through it is this is not about the people building the tabernacle. These chapters, start to finish, are about God building the tabernacle. He, he provides everything for it. This is his work from start to finish. He provides the raw materials. He provides the plans. He even provides the skills and, and the energizings for the, the people who end up, you know, sewing the, the curtains and stuff. God does all of it. He is building the tent in the chapter, not the Israelites. And, and, and the same is true for us today. God is building something beautiful in the local church. It's the same metaphor Jesus uses when he talks to Peter. He says, you're Peter the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. God's building something. And when we look back here at the Passover, or not at the Passover, the tabernacle, we see a glimpse of how we ought to go about building that today. So we're going to start with right here, section number one. In this uh, second tabernacle sermon, second tabernacle section, the Sabbath, God's gift of a day for worship. If you still have your pen out, you could underline those two words right there, for worship. They are key for this. That, that is really the key function of the tabernacle. Everything about it is building a community of worshipers. So, chapter 35, verses 1 through 3, we read this. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on this day, the Sabbath, shall be put to death. So this is high stakes command here. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Not even building a fire, that's too much work, Moses is saying. 
So interestingly, Moses is starting this big tabernacle section here where he's, you know, they're going to actually build the tabernacle, not by talking about the tabernacle at all, but talking about something he's already covered several times, which is the Sabbath, the day of worship. Why? Well, there's, there's two reasons for this. First is kind of a structural perspective when you're looking at, at the book as a whole. It gives us continuity with the last tabernacle section, the one that ended in chapter 31, so four chapters ago. Right there, uh, Moses ended that section with all the instructions about how to build the tent with the Sabbath. So right here, he starts with the Sabbath. It's kind of like those two sections, which are a lot of a word-for-word repetition, almost work like a mirror in that way. And Moses is cueing us into that by starting with the Sabbath. And the reason that we need this continuity so much is the second reason to start with the Sabbath. It's to remind these Israelites that God hasn't abandoned them, that they are still in the covenant. Because does anyone remember what happened in that gap between the two sections? It, it was a horrible disaster, what Bruce called the lowest point in, in Israelite history up, up to that point. It was the golden calf, idolatry blatant rebellion and this is right on the heels of God's offer to to dwell with his people in the form of this tent I mean it's, it's absurd when you think about it in, in that light it's like somebody uh having an affair on like the third day of their honeymoon or something you know like here that is someone just publicly devoted to to love you and to dwell with you for the rest of your life and then as soon as they go away step out of the room for a little bit you find someone else to embrace instead that's that's what how the golden calf reads when we read it and its context in Exodus. And that's why the people need this Sabbath reminder right here. The Sabbath was the primary sign and symbol of this covenant with Moses. Like if you, it, it, it's the primary sacrament, if you will, connected with this covenant in history. And what Moses is saying by starting with the Sabbath here is reminding these people that God has not abandoned them. They're still in the covenant. They still have their day for worship. So now they must go about building the place for worship, the tent. Next section. The collection. Here we see God's gift of giving for worship. Verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen, Goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for the setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and its coverings, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillows, its pillars, its bases, etc., etc. Then we'll go ahead and skip all the way down to verse 20 since we already covered most of that. Verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. That would be the stuff the priests would wear. We're going to get to that later. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord, and everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hairs or tanned ramskins or goatskins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution, and everyone who had possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. 
And every skillful woman spun with her hands. Where are the quilter ladies here? You could have had a part in the tabernacle. And they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oils for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. I, I love this section. I mean, after such a downer with the golden calf, it's great to just see something like this going on. A few things to notice in this giving section. The first is the attitude, which probably jumped out to you as I was reading through that text. I mean, this is free and, and joyful and exuberant giving that's going on. The text like makes a point of highlighting the freeness of the seven different times and kind of seven different ways, actually, talking about you know their generous hearts, everyone whose heart moved them, and this being a totally free will offering all that. It's just, I mean, if, you, if you're reading the book of Exodus straight through, you would notice this is just a total contrast to the last time we saw these same people building anything in the book of Exodus, which was back in chapter 4. Then they were the slaves of Pharaoh. They were beaten and broken of spirit, as the text says. And they were forced to, to build tombs and the, uh, temples for the glory of this, you know, egomaniac leader. But now they are free joyfully and heartily, giving above and beyond to build a home for their new master, the one that they love freely. Not because they're beaten with rods by the overseers, as the text says, but because their hearts move them to do this. They love their master. Huge difference. Second thing to notice is the generosity of, of the giving. This is, this is a lot of stuff that they gave here, right? This would be worth a lot of money. I know you probably haven't checked the price of goat's hair lately, but it is through the roof. We, we actually see a total list of all the stuff used in the tabernacle down in uh, chapter, the end of chapter 38. And it's really, it's wild when it kind of summarizes this. Actually, um, I read that conservative estimates would put just the value of just the raw materials that were used for the tabernacle, like the gold and, you know, the, the leather and all that stuff, in today's dollars at around $20 million. You know, this is, this is a lot going on right here. And they would have given even more if Moses hadn't cut them off, he had to say, stop, please don't give anymore. Look, look at the beginning of chapter, chapter 38, verse 3. And they, that would be the craftsmen, received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring so much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So... Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. You're cut off. Stop, please. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. That's how generous they were. They had to be told to stop. It's beautiful. And third thing you should notice here is the diversity of the giving. That's going on. Again, probably something that jumped out to you in the text. You've got, you know, some people are given their precious metals. Others had raw materials. Some uh, giving of their time or, or their labor. You've got, you've got men giving. You've got women giving. This is just a total communal effort here, which is being stressed. Diversity of people, diversity of wealth and skills, but one heart to give for the glory of God who saves them. That's, that's what's going on here. And finally, the third thing to consider, and I think this is the, the, the big one I would want you to notice, which would be the source of all this giving. This is something Sean and I were talking about a few weeks ago. It's like, where did the people get all this stuff in the middle of the desert? You know, where'd they get, you know, like sea cow hides 
and, and stuff like that. And acacia wood. There's not like just acacia forests growing around there, right? Where, where'd they get all this stuff, the, the jewels? Well, the answer is they didn't get any of this stuff in the desert. They got all this stuff back in Egypt, right? When, when they were leaving. This is all the things that the Israelites were just piling on them, being like, get out of here. Tear, take our gold, take whatever. Just get out of our country. We've had too much of these plagues. So really, it's like these are the spoils of victory. They're like a conquering army out there in the wilderness, laden down with, with all this stuff. And it's God's victory. It wasn't their victory. The, the Israelites didn't do anything to earn any of this wealth. God won the victory over the gods of Egypt and over Pharaoh through the plagues. The people had all this wealth from it, and then they are freely and joyfully returning it to the God who saved them. This, I mean, this really right here is a portrait of what all Christian giving is. Everything we have belongs to God twice over. Once because he's the one who gave it to us through the skills he's gifted us with, through whatever. All of our wealth comes from God. And secondly, it belongs to God because he saved us. He purchased us with the, son of his, with, with the blood of his son. So now we give it back freely and joyfully, just like the people here. So it's a cycle of grace. This is what Christian giving looks like. So the next section we have, the construction of the tabernacle. And this would be God's gift of gifting for worship. Verse 30, then Moses said to the people of Israel, see, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for, every wor- for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahimesach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer than the first verse of chapter 38, Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And then the rest of the chapter there just goes on to describe how they did this, how they built the tabernacle through the gifts that God gave them to do it. There's really a short and simple point that I, that I hope we can observe here before we move on. God doesn't just give money to create this community of worship. He provides gifted people to create and build this community of worship. This, this guy, you know, Bezalel, who now has the skill and wisdom to craft this elaborate tent, not because, you know, he's so smart or, or skilled or anything just on his own, but because God has given him this ability. Again, it just underscores kind of that, that big point, I hope we see, that it is God building this tent. It's not the people. God provides the day for worship, he provides the materials for worship, he provides gifted people for worship, and he does the same thing for us today by his Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. Now, after this, if you're following along in your Bible, we've got kind of a long section about the furniture of the tabernacle, which we we already went over last time. So if you want, you can go ahead and skip down to chapter 39, which is where we're going to find kind of our, our primary emphasis for us today, which is the priests. God's gift of mediators for worship, another essential aspect if this worshiping community is going to happen. And really what's interesting about this section, it's it's not so much a description of the priests themselves or, or, or what they're supposed to do in this worshiping community, but it's more just a description of what the, the priests are supposed to wear. It's their clothes. We see their wardrobe when we read this. Uh, the next book in the Bible, Leviticus, is really the one that gets into uh, 
exactly what they do functionally, kind of on a day-to-day -day basis and also in the specific festivals. This right here, it's just priestly attire. However, in the ancient Near East, clothing was not just clothing. Clothing was a, a form of communication. It told you stuff about the person who wore it, who they are, their status, their, their role in the community. It was highly significant. We still have this going on to some extent today, but it was even more so back then. You know, the clothes make the man. That's, that's, what we're, that's what's going on right here. And what we see in this description of the priestly attire is a, a clear emphasis on two aspects of priesthood, two aspects of what it means to, to be a priest. And they're actually the next two blanks in your handout. So if you get these two, that's it. No more, no more fill in the blanks. The first is the privilege of being a priest, which is access. And then we have the responsibility of being a priest, which is mediation. So that access would be access to God and his, his presence in a unique and special way. And then the responsibility would be to then mediate that access to other people through serving as representatives, representatives of God to the people and representatives of the people before God. Really, you see both of these aspects highlighted in just the priest's clothing in this chapter. First, um, through the uh, worth of the clothing, worth of it. It's, it's, it's really expensive. Verse one, we read, from the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. So blue, purple, scarlet yarns. I, I mentioned this in the last Tabernacle sermon, but the only way to dye these specific colors back then was a really time and labor-intensive process that involved crushing seashells, you know, to get these exact hues. So, I mean, this was, these would be ridiculously expensive robes for the priests here. Why? Because these priests have access to God, the king of the universe, in a unique way. Their clothes must reflect that rare role and rare status that they have within the community. You see this most explicitly through the clothing of the high priest, the one with the most access out of all the priesthood. Verse 30. They made the plate of the holy crown, this would be for the, the, the high priest, of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And they tied to it a cord of blue to fasten it on the turban above as the Lord had commanded Moses. So holy to the Lord, this means set apart for Yahweh. This is access to God on an un unprecedented level, the representatives of, uh, of God himself to the people. This is, this is what it means to be a priest a living, enfleshed representative of the unseen God. But on the flip side of this, the priests not only serve as God's representatives to the people, but they also serve as the people's representatives to God. But both are part of that priestly responsibility of mediation. You can't have one without the other. This is why the, the priest's breastplate has all these precious stones on it. Verse 14, there were 12 stones on it, the breastplate, with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They were like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. So when the priest is wearing this breastplate on his chest with, you know, all the, the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes, it's like when he goes into that most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement, he is like bringing the entirety of the people in there with him as their representative. They're all going before the presence of God because he's their representative, their mediator. It, it's amazing. This is what it means to be a priest to represent God to the people, to represent the people to God. God wanted to create a worshiping community, so he gave his people the gift of priests. A gift which, believe it or not, we still have today. 
in, according to the author of Hebrews, a superior way to the way they had this gift back then. So this is where we're going to turn the focus on ourselves, all right? Right here, looking at kind of the nitty-gritty of life, Fellowship Bible Church, or any local church that you might be a part of in the future, or that maybe you are right now if you're visiting. What I hope to kind of caution against are what I see as two bad attitudes that can um, keep people from engaging in church the way they ought to. These would be two bad attitudes that the, the tabernacle actually exposes and corrects when we understand it properly. And both of these attitudes at their core, I think, come from an un, a misunderstanding for Christians today about what it means to be a priest and what it means to have a priest. Misunderstanding about the priesthood. Those, t- those two takeaways from the beginning, right? That you have a priest, you are a priest. If you don't, if you don't understand these truths and, and, and know what they mean for you as a follower of Jesus, the two attitudes that I'm going to warn against are very easy to slip into. I, I've, I've heard them often from friends that I've talked to. I've actually slipped into them myself uh, from time to time. I'd be surprised if you haven't felt this way at one time or another yourself. And when these attitudes become fully developed, they have the potential to completely undermine your enjoyment of and your participation in this beautiful thing that Jesus Christ is still building right here in your local church. So, bad attitude number one would be a sense of personal inadequacy. Basically saying, I'm not good enough for this. I'm not good enough for God's worshiping community. You, you look at your church and you think, this isn't the place for me. You know, have, have you ever felt that way? Like, you look around and you just see like, a bunch of good-looking, fit, happy people with, with kids that are always behaving. And, you know, they've got like their hand-woven Bible cover from alpaca fur or whatever, you know. And you're like, that's not me. You know, I know what I, what I struggled with this week. I know what I'm probably still going to struggle with next week. This just, this this isn't the place for me. So then you kind of withdraw from church or you find yourself holding back like you don't want to be fully open with people or you don't even want to go to church some Sundays when you feel like, oh my goodness, I just really blew it this week. My moral tracker, if I go to church, I'm just going to feel really guilty. I don't, I, I don't want to go be a part of that at all. So you, you withdraw. You say, I'll wait till I'm good enough and then I can go back to church. And that is, that is just such a tragedy. Very understandable attitude to have in our culture though. I mean, we live in the United States, which kind of was founded as the ultimate meritocracy, so to speak. This place where we take pride in things that are earned, not given, right? Where, where status is achieved, not status just granted to you as grace for nothing. Actually, my buddy Jairus um, was in a, a basketball tournament last week in Spokane, and he had the opportunity, his team did, to beat the championship team by taking a couple of foul shots. They, they were, he had, their team had 19 points. It was first team to 20 wins the game, and he got fouled, but he said, you know what? No, I don't want to take the foul shots. Why? He didn't want to win the game on a penalty. He didn't want it handed to him like that, so he said, no, you guys just have the ball. They did a couple more time, you know, a couple more possession exchanges. They ended up losing the game, so there you go, but it shows that, you know, that is I think admirable in the sense of a basketball game, but when you bring your, that sort of attitude to church, like, I don't want this just given to me. I kind of want to earn my place. That's a very harmful and toxic attitude to have, but so much of our culture is like that, we, we end up thinking that way. 
the unique thing about church, as what it's clearly shown in this text of the tabernacle, where all these people, these Israelites didn't deserve, deserve God's gift of dwelling with them. They deserve to be destroyed after the golden calf. But what's so clear is that in God's community, no one earns their place here. Nobody. That's, the, the, no one is good enough. The only reason that anyone is a part of this local church and belongs here is the same reason anyone's part of any local church or belongs there at all. It's because not what they bring to the table, but because they have a priest who has done everything for them. Hebrews 9, 24 through 26 says, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own. That would be the blood of the sacrifice. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We have a priest. This is why Earl doesn't wear a cassock, all right? This, this is why we have kids come up here and pass communion along with the adults. This, this is why there's no special section of, of seats for, you know, kind of the elite believers or those who are, who are the good ones versus, you know, the people kind of in the back row. No offense to you all back there. But <laughs> in Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as an average Christian. It's just, it's, it's, it's true. Every Christian here shares the same spiritual status. We share the, the, the same permanent place in God's home. We share the same comprehensive forgiveness because every single person here shares the same priest. Praise God. If you belong to Jesus, then you should know without a shadow of a doubt anywhere in your heart that you belong here. End of story. The second bad attitude that can keep you from um, the joy of really fully engaging and, and fully participating in your local church is actually kind of the complete opposite of that first one, and that would be a feeling of personal adequacy, which would be thinking basically, I don't need this, you know? I, I read a blog from um, a well-known Christian writer um, a couple years ago, back in 2014, that really expressed this view perfectly. And I'm actually not going to say his name associated with it because I think he might have changed his view uh, on this since the writing of the blog. Because I went back and I looked at a bunch of old links to try to find this blog last week. It's gone. It's been scrubbed from the internet. Just kind of get you get rerouted back to just his, his main site. So I think either he's like recanted or he got sick of receiving letters from pastors who disagreed we you know with him all the time whatever but uh fortunately i'd actually saved a copy of this blog way back when i had read it in 2014 so for you kids out there just keep that in mind nothing is ever truly scrubbed from the internet so anyway here is here is what he wrote he said i don't experience intimacy with god in a traditional worship service in fact i can count on one hand the number of sermons i actually remember so to be brutally honest, I don't learn much about God hearing a sermon, and I don't connect with him by singing songs to him. So like most men, a traditional service can be somewhat long and difficult to get through. I'm fine with this, though, he continues. I've studied psychology and education reform long enough to know that a traditional lecture isn't for everybody. There's an entire demographic of people who have to learn by doing, not hearing. So you can lecture to them all day, and they're simply not going to get it. So, how do I find intimacy with God if not through a traditional church model? 
The answer came to me recently, and it was a freeing revelation. I connect with God by working. I literally feel an intimacy with God when I build my company. I know it sounds crazy, but I believe God gave me my mission and my team, and I feel closest to him when I've got my hand on the plow. It's thrilling, and I couldn't be more grateful he's given me an outlet through which I can both serve and connect with him. Then he concludes, so do I attend church? Not often, to be honest. Like I said, it's not how I learn. But I also believe the church is all around us, not to be confined by a specific tribe. I'm fine with where I've landed and finally experiencing some forward momentum in my faith. I worship God every day through my work. It's a blast. In other words, I don't need church, so why bother with church, right? If, if I'm a, you know, a fairly strong person spiritually, if my, my local church isn't really meeting any of my felt needs anyway, I'm not getting a lot out of it, why bother? Well, I tell you what, if, if Martin Luther had been alive and had read that blog post, uh, he would have written a scathing comment at the bottom. The good news is it probably, he probably would have written it in German, so he would not be fully culpable for all of his uncharitable comments. But the gist of what he would say is this. Why invest in your local church even if you're not getting anything out of it? Because you are a priest. Yes, you, Mr. Average Christian out there, you are a priest. A priest is a living uh, flesh and blood representative of the living God. And this is exactly who we are in Christ Jesus. We are, we are Christ's body, Paul says. We are indwelt by God's spirit, the same spirit who, who set us apart and empowers us to serve, not for our own good, but for the good of the rest of the body. So yes, we have the privilege of, of priesthood, which is, you know, this full access to God, and that's extraordinary, but don't forget you also have the responsibility of priesthood. We must mediate God's ministry to other Christians. This is what it means to be a priest. And then I would ask that writer, what good is a priest without a tabernacle? It's, it's, like, it's like a doctor who's someone who, you know, someone paid for your medical school and gave you all this mentorship and training and stuff to make you an extraordinary, extraordinarily equipped to heal other people, but then you never bother going to the clinic. Because when you go to the clinic, you don't get much out of it for yourself. That's just totally the wrong perspective to have. You may not feel like you need your local church, but really, you know, when you're thinking about should I go to church or not, that is not a relevant consideration at all. If you are a priest, then in, in God's plan and in God's purpose, there is a local church that needs you. So I'll just say something special to any of you seniors that are going to be going to college. That is true for you. If you're going away to college somewhere and you're only going to be there, you know, during the school year or you're only going to be there for, you know, a couple of years, whatever, I hope that you get fully involved and engaged in a local church while you're away because that is a unique opportunity and God has placed you there to serve a local body. Make the effort to do it. I think one of the, the, the clearest ways that this responsibility comes, comes out in, in the New Testament is through the one another commands. All right, you might be familiar with these. This is actually your homework assignment. There, there's a ton of different ones of these. I have them listed out on the bottom of your handout there. We've got like uh, love one another, serve one another, bear with one another, greet one another, pray for one another, be kind to one another, do good to one another, meet with one another, show hospitality to one another, and, and so on down the list. But the, the thing about these commands, which, which show up across the New Testament, is that these are never given in uh, the abstract, like love humanity in general, or 
have just kind of a general aura of welcome for your community. No, these are without exception, always given within a specific context to be expressed within a specific context, and that context is the local church. That's, it's actually one of my big problems with, with an approach that, that many young Christians are taking these days toward Christian community, which um, I guess you could call it a form of friend fellowship. That's not really committing to one local church, but having like a you know, really tight group of Christian friends that you get together with on a, on a pretty regular basis. And you eat meals together, you pray for each other, you do Bible studies in your house, you know, that sort of thing. Close, close friendship, close fellowship actually. And on its own, that's fine. But that is not what it means to be a priest, and that is not the context for obeying these one another commands that we find over and over again in the New Testament. Every single one of these commands can only be fulfilled in the context of a local church. Not doing this stuff for the people that you choose to, to, to be part of your friend group or anything like that, but doing all these commands to the people that God has chosen, those whom God has saved, God has called, that God has gone to, that God has, has drawn to himself and then drawn together in the local context of a church. That is where these commands have to happen. And really, that's what gives these commands teeth. It's the people God has gathered, not you. It's what makes these commands such a difficult aspect of, of Christian discipleship. Because God doesn't say, like, you know, love the guy that you're already friends with and respect for his uh, good sense of humor and savvy Christian wisdom, right? He says, love the guy at your church who, who you might actually not like very much, who maybe kind of gets on your nerves in various ways in, in a regular basis. Or he says, forgive and serve the woman that you're pretty sure has gossiped about you several times in the past couple of years. Serve her, love her. Be hospitable to that family from the other side of town that you really don't have anything in common with, that your paths would never cross otherwise except that you both love Jesus and you're both in the same church that God has gathered together. Welcome them. Be hospitable to them. Invite those people into your home. You see what I mean? It's like uh, Jesus put it. He says, you know, if you love those who love you, what good is that? You know, even the pagans do that. And this is the beauty of the local church. It's also the challenge of the local church. That's why, really, that's why we have most of the New Testament. <laughs> it's because of how hard these one another commands are. This is why Paul had to write uh, so many letters telling the Jews to welcome the Gentiles. Eat with those people. You know, and the rich people. Don't, don't finish all your big communion feasts before the poor people get off from work. You, know, you guys need to eat together. You're part of the same family, the same church. He also wrote that letter telling two old ladies named Euodia and Syntyche to stop squabbling with each other and forgive each other and be friends. This is what it means to be a priest. This is what church life is. So your homework with that list right there. Read them can look them up. I put all the, the references down and then evaluate yourself. Just ask, you know, how am I doing right now at living these out? Am, am I living out my responsibilities as a, as, as a priest of God in his local tabernacle or am I somehow neglecting that duty and in living really in some form of passive disobedience in that regard? Another helpful exercise to do with this list, and this would be kind of the more positive way to look at it, is as you go through it, think about various times either in this local church or other local churches that you have been ministered to in these ways, where other people have priested you, in a sense, and blessed you. That's actually, you know, as I was typing this list, uh, it was so encouraging to me. I could put like a name and face to almost every one of these commands, where, where 
you guys right here at Fellowship Bible Church have, have ministered to me personally or my family in every single one of these specific ways. It was beautiful. This church is full of priests. Praise God for that. And, and for those of you here who need the reminders on this list, consider these commands not just a matter of obedience, which they are, but I also hope that you see them for what they really are, and that's an invitation to something far better than you're experiencing right now, and that would be the joy of truly enriching fellowship in the body of Christ. Because believe it or not, the writer of that blog, he wasn't totally off in his assumptions. Like, he should want to get something out of church. That's, that's, that's a good thing. We, sh- we should want to grow and, and benefit from our fellowship with other believers. That is not an illegitimate goal by any means. But paradoxically, according to Jesus, the way that you get to that goal, the way you experience that true and enriching fellowship, is not through trying to get something, but through committing to give, committing to serve. It's interesting. I thought about this, like, if I were to survey, you know, you know, just go to various local churches in our area and find the people in that church who would say they are the most satisfied with their local church experience. They're the ones who are saying, I'm experiencing the richest fellowship, the most joy, I have the deepest appreciation for what this church is and what that church does. I would not be surprised if those same people are also the ones who are the least interested in just trying to get something out of their church. I bet you would find that those people are the ones who have committed in their hearts deeply through the work of Christ in them and out of gratitude for what Christ has done to say, I'm just going to be a giver at my church. I'm coming here not to be served, but to serve. And that is where you experience the deepest joy. So, you know, you could almost make a challenge out of this, kind of like the Pepsi challenge back in the day, but you could call this the priestly challenge, all right? Just commit. Say, like, I'm going to take the next 12 months, say, and I'm going to just really try hard to fulfill all of these one another commands. I'm going to think of specific tangible ways. I'm going to think of people that I can bless through doing these various things. Do that for a year and see if your perspective on your local church has not changed over that time. 12 months of doing this, see if you are not experiencing deeper fellowship, deeper joy, and deeper conformity to the way of Jesus in your own life. So all that to say, we need to put on our cassocks, okay? Let us imitate Jesus Let us walk in his footsteps, the footsteps of our great high priest, and mediate the love and grace of God to each other. For in doing so, we will experience the joy of fellowship. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for giving us a priest. Thank you that we can come to you, that we can pray to you, that we can sing to you unashamed, not by our own works, but by the work of your son, his blood which cleanses us, his blood which brings us into the most holy of holies, your very presence. Thank you. Thank you for your spirit who indwells us, who empowers us, just like uh, your spirit empowered Bezalel back in the day to build the tabernacle, that you empower us for the purpose of building your local church community right here. We thank you for that, Father. And we ask humbly that you would continue to draw us deeper and deeper into that, that we would see your church the way you see it, as something holy, beautiful, and precious, as something to be treasured, as something that's worth giving and giving and giving for, Lord. And to do so and find deeper, deeper pleasure in you and experience evermore the grace of your Son mediated to us by others. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.